Hi there, folks. Welcome to episode 3189 of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday, so as per usual, you have me, just Jack, and we're going to be talking about permaculture today in a way that I don't think we ever have before. I was thinking over the weekend, uh, where, by the way, I got to spend some time with family I don't usually get to do or to see, and so that was great. And I was thinking, what can I talk about on Monday? And I realized like tons of you guys, like I know that the viewer count would be higher if we talked about something like the fact that the 101st Airborne has been deployed to Europe and what that could mean for the Ukraine-Russian conflict and drawing the U.S. into a freaking world war or something like that, or all the doom and gloom, or what the dementia patient uh, in the White House said, or what the orange man said, because both of them said some pretty stupid shit over the past week. Like that gets more people to show up. But why we do a thing is less important than the thing that we do. We have to examine the why at times. It gives us impetus. It gives us motivation. But what we do in our sphere of influence and our sphere of control is what really matters. And most of the stuff, when we talk about those other things, that, again, more people show up. More people show up when I do it. If I wanted more listeners, if I wanted more viewers, if I wanted to be bigger than I am, I would talk about that shit night and day, seven days a week, and nothing else. But then I wouldn't have a group of people who are really dedicated to making their lives better and being prepared for all the crap that all this nonsense causes. And instead of having a moderate-sized group of people who really, really mean what they say, I'd have a huge group of people that like to hear themselves talk. And so I am going to try to make a concerted effort finishing out the year to at least one show a week being something like this, the what you do. But today is really more how to think about what you do. We're going to be talking about understanding permaculture today. Before I proceed, if you are watching this video, you see a little thing down there. It says we will never contact you for any personal information or private chat, et cetera, in the video comments. Just because you see my logo does not mean it's me. That applies on all social media platforms, et cetera. If you're not talking to me directly from my email address, able to email back and forth between that email address, they just assume it's not me. Even if I'm giving you some information and all, you know, <laughs> Verify, don't trust, uh, because these platforms don't care about you. They're not going to do what's necessary to help us protect you, because there's a couple of things that could be done real easy that would totally minimize this type of thing, but they don't want to do it. So let's go back into how we're going to approach today's show. So today's show is going to come to you by taking my definition of permaculture, which is not my own, there's, but there's many definitions. The one I've personally adopted when I'm on a radio show or somebody's podcast or I'm at an event and I'm presented with the question, how do you define permaculture? I define it exactly this way. Permaculture is an ethical design science that uses natural systems to provide all human and ecological needs in a regenerative way. In other words, I define it the way that I'm being asked to define it, like I'm giving the definition to a word you would find in a dictionary. Today we're going to define the definition. Today, we're going to define the definition, and this is where we're coming from today. Two angles at this. Number one, a lot of people don't know this about me, and I think would be surprised to hear it if you've never heard me talk about it before, but I grew up a good Catholic boy. Yep. Went to Catholic school and everything. Managed to get myself thrown out in seventh grade because I didn't want to be there anymore, and yes, it was intentional. 
But yeah, I went to Catholic school. That means that I went to church every freaking day when I was a kid in grade school. And, uh, and I mean every day, like five days a week, church was part of school. And I hated it. You don't have to agree with me on that one way or the other. Uh, this is not a dig at the Catholic church. I'm just telling you personally that I hated it, except for one part. One part. It was called the homily. And in the homily, the priest just kind of sits in his chair or stands at the pulpit, depending on what's going on, and he just talks from the hip. He just talks from the hip. He basically says, you know, all this stuff we talk about, all the ritual all the scripture, everything, like, here's what it means to you. Here's what it means to you. So I'm coming at this today kind of like a homily. This is, this is what this succinct definition means to you. But I'm also coming at it this way as well. Jeff Lawton once said of Bill Mollison, co-founder of Permaculture, Bill writes a sentence like a paragraph, a paragraph like a page. A page like a chapter, a chapter like a book, and a book like a full set of encyclopedias. For a long time, I was perplexed by that. I was like, I agree. I would read one paragraph out of the PDM, and I would have to literally, like, my head would hurt. I'd have to, that's the Permaculture Designer's Manual, for those who don't know. I'd have to put it down, and I would have to digest it over time before I could go back and read the next paragraph. And that's why it's actually a very difficult book to read. I don't know how many people actually have read the entire PDM. I will admit that I haven't. There's parts of it that I think, I, I guess I'm not ready for. There's parts of it that I think, uh, to be fair, I think are outdated. I think if you read the PDM and you read chapter 14, there's a lot of great ideas in there. But when you move into a world that we have today with greater technology payment systems like Bitcoin, et cetera, you can completely rewrite the 14th chapter, which means you just didn't have the tech. You know, let's would be a form of cryptocurrency today. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but the rest of it, I think it's it's just I'm not ready yet or I'm not prepared to go there yet or it doesn't apply to my life. And again, I want to come at this like a homily. But I was always perplexed, like, how can a man do this? And now I realize that it's actually not complicated to understand how. The reason you have one man that can do this is you had the man that created permaculture. Therefore, he understood permaculture. Therefore, he wrote about permaculture from the, from the angle of understanding permaculture. And when you do that, that's what you get. And the more you understand permaculture, the more you'll dig out of a sentence or a paragraph or a page. Today, I'm going to do my entire outline is based on nothing but that definition I gave you. We're going to define the definition. And you might think that's pretty basic. I mean, permaculture is an ethical design science that uses natural systems to provide all human and ecological needs in a regenerative way. Okay, how about we define ethical? How about we define each of the ethics under ethical? How about we define the prime directive, which is part of the ethical concept, and we haven't even gotten past ethical? Permaculture is, doesn't count, that was the question, and ethical. That's how much we have there. Well, then we have to define science as it relates to our question. How does science, what is science? What is the science that we're talking about here? What do we mean when we use that word? What is design? What does design mean? Designs can mean lots of things. Designs can mean, design can mean a ton of different things. 
What do we mean when we say design? What are we talking about? What are natural systems? What makes a system natural? If we made it, is it still natural? Are we natural? What about provide? What do we mean by provide? Does that mean if, 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 that somebody brings it to you? Or does that mean that people who want to participate can acquire their needs from natural systems? And what do natural systems mean? What are human needs? What are human needs? What are ecological needs? What does regenerative mean? And all of a sudden, this little tiny sentence is not a paragraph. It's a chapter. Maybe more. Maybe more. Before we get into all that, I want to just real quick hit our two sponsors of the day for you today. Sponsor of the day number one today is John Bush. And John recently did the Great Financial Reset Response Webinar, dealing with all the stuff we kind of started, all the problems. Like, what do you do tactically to deal with this? And so it ran on Friday. or th- It was Thursday or Friday last week. It was Thursday last week it ran. And I had heard a ton of great feedback from people. I'm like, well, you missed it. And John got in touch with me. He said, no, no, they didn't miss it. You have until tomorrow night. So I, today, October the 24th, Monday. I don't know when you're listening, but while I'm doing it, that's what it is. It's Monday, about noon, October 24th. And you have until tomorrow night, so Tuesday the 25th. You can go through the link in the video notes or the show notes today. You can register for it. You can watch it at your leisure until that point. And you'll learn about the next phase in this series of webinars that's coming uh, down the pike. Next up today is JM Bullion. I know you guys know that I am big on uh, Bitcoin. I think it is one of the greatest ways to preserve wealth out there. And I often hear from people like, I don't believe in Bitcoin, man. I believe in silver. I believe in gold. Um, I believe in things that work. And gold has been a store of value for a very, very long time. I don't think it makes necessarily the greatest form of money anymore. That It doesn't work in a digital age as money without significant counterparty risk. But it is an an amazing store of value, and it's not going to cease being a store of value. Silver is both a store of value and industrial metal with what's known as an inelastic demand. That means there are certain things that silver goes into that if silver price goes up to $65, the industrial uh, uh, you know, process is still going to require it, and they're still going to pay for it. It won't matter. That demand is inelastic. And that's why I think both are great investments. Both provide long in, belong in your portfolio. I wanted to point this out today, though. You can look at – there's a ton of stuff that JM Bullion offers. They're a great company, very competitive on price. But if you look down where, on their page where it says, why choose JM Bullion? JM Bullion is an online retailer of precious metal products established in 2011. Do you know when they became a survival podcast sponsor? 2012. We've been working with them since 2012. That means if there's ever a problem, uh, I can get in touch with the president. His name's Michael. I won't say more than that. I don't want to dox my own sponsor. I don't. People have personal lives. Um, but I can get directly in touch with them, and it gets handled. And that happens almost never. But you might imagine there were some hiccups. There were some hiccups when we started, being that they were only about a year old. Right. And Michael said to me over and over again, when I would bring this to his attention, thank you. Thank you. He saw it as a way to tighten up his operations. And that 
made it right away the partner I wanted to work with long term. So check out Jam Bullion. You get free shipping. Uh, you get discounts if you're a member of my program. You get better pricing than Monix and Atmix, and you get the same silver or gold. That's kind of the whole point of silver and gold. With that, let's uh, let's dig on into this. Let's talk about permaculture and going into what is permaculture, and let's start with that definition of it's an ethical design science that uses natural systems to provide all human and ecological needs in a regenerative way. And I'm going to start right off with I tend I tend not to point out my disagreements with other permaculture practitioners. I tend to let permaculture speak for itself. And each of us is a designer and a teacher and a consultant and a theorist and a practitioner in our own way. And then permaculture is the art and the 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 palette that we paint with, right? And then people choose what they want to use. And when that comes down to like, should you or should you not have an herb spiral, just as a little thing, I think herb spirals generally turn into weed spirals. I'm not exactly enamored with them, but if you want one, go have one. I'm not going to have a debate about that. And I'm not even going to defend my position. It's just, that's my opinion. That's my, for me on my property, the way I do things, I don't want an herb spiral. You do great. Let's, we'll hold hands and sing Kumbaya and we won't worry about it. Right. But the first part of this definition, there are permaculture teachers who have left the ethics and the prime directive out of permaculture. And that I disagree with. I think it's actually very difficult to truly teach permaculture as I'm defining it here. And, I, and this is the most eloquent, succinct, accurate definition of permaculture as a thing that I have found. I did not create it. It is not mine. Uh, I cobbled it together from different pieces, parts of great permaculturists. Uh, I will give credit to both uh, Jeff Lawton, I'll, I'll say Jeff Lawton, Ben Falk, and Bill Mollison, and David Holden. But those are the people that I've basically cobbled this together from. And I can't use the definition without the word ethical. And here's what I mean. Permaculture is a design science that uses natural systems to provide all human and ecological needs in a regenerative way. I've just created something that could be a monster. We remove ethics. Well, if I decide that, you know, this particular system, like let's say fossil fuels is bad, then we should just shut it off no matter what happens and how many people die. With no understanding that that also might have ecological consequences as well. I'm just saying like we might actually have a role here. So we might fail the, the, the everything about the ethics if we did that. If I decide that this particular organism is an invasive species, I might eradicate it without understanding the full implications of what I do. And there's no reason for me to worry about it because I have no ethics to worry, to, to get in my way. Science absent ethics is incredibly malicious. That's why when you hear words like technocracy, it should, it should chill you a little bit in your bones. That's why there's so much harm done in the name of science in the pharmaceutical industry in the food industry, in the medical industry, you might say, well, you just said farm. Well, I'm talking pharmaceuticals, the things that go in our body, medical industry, the things that doctors tell us to do. And you can keep going from there. And there's so much harm done in the name of science. And, you know, you're talking, when you say medicine, that's a place where people take an oath to be ethical. And they don't necessarily pull off the ethics very well. And they make excuses like, I have too much time invested now. I'm a young doctor. I just got out of school and finished my internship. I can't speak out about this thing, even though I know that this thing is a thing. So we need to have grounding ethics. 
So to me, when we define ethical in permaculture, we start from the prime directive and the three ethics. So then we have to define those. So in the prime directive, we come from a standpoint, and the prime directive is not labeled an ethical or one of the ethics, but it uses the word ethical. And it, in, the, in the designer's manual, it comes directly above the three ethics. It is, it is the is the thing that encapsulates the ethics. And that is that the only ethical decision, so we're back to ethics, is to take responsibility for that of ourselves and that of our children. So then within that, we actually have to define, well, who's ourselves and who's our children? And what we know of permaculture from the work that Bill did is it's all about what you can do. It's And, it's, and, and I have checked... And I have looked deeply for a place in any of the writing by either of Permaculture's founders, David Holgram or Bill Mollison, that makes an allowance for the use of force on another person in order to accomplish permaculture design. I have not found it. If any does find it, you can send it to me, and I will do a Jack Was Wrong segment. I'll play the music and everything. I have not found it. So right out of the gate, we can't use force, which means when we say ourselves, we have to mean us, me, this meat sack right here sitting in the chair. I can't speak for you. And if I'm going to work with anybody else that considers themselves part of my ourselves, that has to be voluntary. That's just the nature of the definition. So I have to take responsibility for myself. So we're collectively speaking as permaculture soldiers ourselves, but we're individually choosing the means by which we do that. Okay? We can't have forced collectivism and call it permaculture. Just can't. There's, there's no room for it in that framework. It doesn't exist. Not because I say so, because it doesn't exist. So then when we say our children, we must mean the children that we leave behind as individuals, as families, or as voluntarily associated groups. So it is important from the ethical standpoint, right out of the gate, that I first say, hey, look, I, I have a cost to the planet. I have a cost to my fellow man. The first thing I must do is put my own mask on, right, like the airplanes, before I help my, my, my neighbor passenger. Because if I pass out, they die. And if I put my mask on and my kid's sitting here and they're having trouble and somebody's over here that's having trouble, I'm going to put the mask on my kid, then I'm going to put the mask on this other person. And then in the airplane analogy, I can't really help the person behind me. Maybe I can go one row back and forth, but I can't help the person over there. Somebody else has to pick up the slack. And that's the prime directive, like the things that are inside your level of control, you start with yourself, you move out into your family, and you move into those that you can help. And you will never be a 10. Jeff recently did a, a great answer on, on this, on, on the show, where he said, none of us are going to be perfect. And I completely agree. I, I, I would say that if you are a 5 out of 10 in fully taking responsibility for yourself and your children. You're a freaking rock star today. And I know a lot of people say, well, that's not good enough. Those people are probably threes or twos or ones. Those are people that probably think, well, if I vote for the right ass clown, then I'm taking responsibility. No, you're not. Where does your food come from? You know, I, I get heat from people and I'm like, you know, every morning when I make a pot of coffee, I take the pot of the, the, the pot from the previous day and rinse it out and put my coffee grinds into a little thing that I compost that I use to grow food for myself and my animals, and I have just started the day, and you're worried about 
me saying the right words or supporting some program which is going to be force by its very definition. No. No. I have to take responsibility for me, property that I am blessed with the ability to manage, my family, my animals, everything that I do as best that I can. When I turn the light switch on, that's coming mostly from fossil fuels, even though Texas is producing, I think, 56% of our energy from renewables. I, I would prefer to be completely off-grid. So, yeah, financially and logistically not not doable where I am in my place in life right now. It's okay. It's okay. I'm happy to be a five or a six. I think if you're an eight on that scale, you're, you're someone in the neighborhood of like a Sepp Holzer. And I don't think we have any tens, and that's okay. We just have to be striving to do the best that we can. That's the, that's the base layer of the ethics. Then we move into the three ethics that go underneath that directive. Care of the earth. If we are harming the earth, specifically with intent or complete disregard, then we have already failed ethical design science because we failed ethics. So that doesn't mean that we might not have a thing that we do that's not the best environmental process. Are we aware of it? And are we always seeking a way to eliminate it or mitigate it? That That's the way to be pragmatic here. And people that are purists, like I said, they're always on the scale of one to ten. They're the twos and threes or ones or zeros. Well, if that's not perfect, well, you show me somebody perfect. You show me somebody perfect, and I will show you a fictional story. I'll just say that. So we have to care for the earth. We have to care for people, though. And this is what anchors a design science from becoming a Frankenstein science. So when you say, I'm going to make sure that we use a design science to care for the earth, it would be really easy for people to make a case that less people are better for the earth. Well, which people? Well, the ones we decide. See how, how fast that goes down into uh, like a eugenics type of world. So we also have to not harm people with intent. That doesn't mean that nothing we do will ever have any adverse effect on any other human because we live in the real world. But if we're doing something, and let's say that we're, we're sourcing a material from a place where human labor is abused, but we need that thing and there really isn't an alternative, then maybe we do the best we can within that circumstance to do more good than bad. But if there is an alternative presented that you don't need to use this this abusive system, then you should take it. And you should ask yourself, do I really need this? Is this really a requirement in my life? And always be kind of checksumming that. Are the things I'm doing hurting the earth? Are they hurting people? And then if you live this way with intentional design, you're going to have something we call a yield Another word for yield is a surplus. That means that you're getting more out than you're putting in. We also have another word for that. If we measure it in monetary gain, we call it a profit. And the profit is to be reinvested to the care of earth, the care of people, taking responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. Now, there's a lot of people that have tried to change that third ethic because they want to force force into permaculture, which is not acceptable, to you, you distribute the surplus. You send it somewhere else. The reason this fails, you leave all the politics at, on the floor, and you don't even worry about trying to, to change a system which is pretty much an anarcho-designed system into a socialist system. You let that go, 
and you've just defined modern agriculture and how to destroy the land and fail the first ethic of care of the earth. When we take all our surplus and we distribute it, we, there's a word for that, mining. That's what mining is. You go in the ground, you dig up, and everything that you find of value, you export it, and you are left with a giant scar and hole and waste and pollution. That's a strip mining operation. I grew up in the coal region. I hate coal, and I hate coal because I've seen what coal did to one of the most beautiful ecosystems on the planet, central Pennsylvania, and that's strip mining. And, and this is how we're farming today. Everything that the farmer gleans from the field that has any value off the field gets sold. And then we, we import elements that we call fertilizer that are produced with other environmentally toxic ways that are mined somewhere else. So you're actually mining this place, and the stuff that you're taking beyond its means, you're mining another place to bring it in. There is no world where modern agriculture is even anything remotely akin to permaculture when it's being done that way. But if you distribute surplus, that's exactly what you're doing. There's another way to state the third ethic. It was the original way it was, it was stated, and I actually prefer it. And it is that we, uh, we set limits on population and consumption. This got twisted to be very much a eugenics thing in of itself because, well, that means that we'll decide that not you know, only so many people can live here. So that means some people have to go. Well, who? Well, the ones we decide. That's how eugenics works. If, you, if, you, if you're anchored with responsibility for yourself and that of your children, if you're anchored with care of earth and care of people, then you can't get there. What does this mean? This, and this, I'm going I'm to explain where all this came from here in just a second, and it'll really make sense then. But I have a piece of property. It's about three acres. I've run as many as 150 ducks on the property. That works. You know what wouldn't work? A thousand. A thousand ducks on this property, unless I do it like a Tyson chicken house thing with, with these, uh, like industrial house, like poultry houses. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work and it shouldn't work. And nobody with any brains would say it, say it would. So what do I do? I don't overpopulate my property with ducks. If you look at the way we design urban settlements, we cram way too many people in and, and we have problems with you know, COVID's aside, just like pretend that never happened. We have problems with communicable diseases. Well, I'm not surprised. You've overpopulated an area and you've done it by design because you did design without ethics. See how that works? So there's a finite number of people. If we were all wealthy enough to live the way we want and do our planned community and we, we bought a thousand acres, wouldn't we set a limit to how many housing developments go on that thousand acres voluntarily? Right. What when we say, like, obviously, we didn't do all this to recreate New York City. So on this thousand acres, we're going to say that there's X amount of zone five permaculture, which is where we don't touch it. So it's common area. It's for foraging. It's for hunting. It's for contemplating. It's for going into the forest to learn from the teacher. The forest of the teacher is a permaculture principle. Forest being the ultimate teacher. We're going to have some other stuff that's like common design managed area. Everybody's going to have at least this much. We're going to put buffer between people, and we're going to do this in an ecologically friendly footprint. So that's limits on population and consumption. Either of those definitions work for the third because they actually mean the same thing. If you set limits on population and consumption according to the first two ethics and the prime directive, you will be reinvesting surplus to the end of the first two ethics. 
and, and, and almost nobody explains it this way, uh, specifically teachers who have avoided the subject because they don't want it, all the little touchy things, all the little points where you felt a little bit triggered in the last 10 minutes while I was talking. They just don't want that. But how do we have a design science that delivers on permaculture's promise if we don't first anchor it in ethics? So now we've got as far as permaculture is an ethical, full stop. That's as far as we've gotten in this definition. Let's like move a little faster. It gets easier from here. Design science. So let's define science. What is science? Science to me, and I think it's a perfect definition for permaculture. Oh, I got to back up just a second before we leave the ethics. Just a second, I promise. The beauty of the ethics of permacultures, I've just explained them to you is that it's very hard for anybody, unless they just want to disagree, to disagree with them. And that was by design. So what Bill did is he went to, I think it was something like 38 different indigenous cultures that were still around, and also gleaned from many other indigenous cultures that had disappeared. What were the primary ethics that they managed their civilizations and their tribes, et cetera, by? What were the most common things? And care of the earth, care of people, and setting limitations on things like when we hunt, how much we take, how many people live here. Like, those were all common. And the common ethos that we all take responsibility for ourselves and for that of our children. And our children often, in a tribal system, being all the children of the tribe who were there together by choice. So that's why it, that's why it works so well for so many people because We've gotten a lot of other baggage out of the way with that. There are plenty of things, even with the people that are in this live stream, who are probably more like me than most people I would ever meet, that I think are ethical, that you think are unethical, that you think are ethical, that I think is unethical. Tons of stuff. But we can likely agree upon this. So for it to work, it has to be as universal as possible for those that wish to understand. And it's kind of like a martial art in a way. Two martial artists can have the same teacher. One can become a great martial artist, even if they don't have an incredible amount of natural talent. The other can have a lot of natural talent and never become really good because they didn't put the work into understanding the art and the teacher. Okay? All right, moving on. Now we can go into science. Science is an error-detecting process. That's what science as a method is. It's an error-detecting process. When you learn the scientific method, in grade school, hopefully, I don't know if they teach it then anymore, you learn a very simple methodology. We take a thing, we isolate it down to a single thing, we create a single variable, we measure the difference between the two variables, and we've made a hypothesis based on what we know, what we expect to learn from that, and we either confirm the hypothesis sufficiently for it to become a theory, or we disprove the hypothesis because we detected the error. Now, the problem with this when it gets applied to a living system, you have the soil with a gazillion different organisms within it, and you're trying to isolate down to the effect of a single organism, so you sterilize and sanitize everything, and you make everything else equal by having an inert, and you don't understand that every one of those organisms has a relationship with every other one of those organisms. So if you had five organisms in your soil and you added an organism, you would think you added a single relationship, but you didn't. You added six. And that's just at a very, a very simplistic level. 
because this one new organism has an interaction with each of the other five, a potential interaction anyway. But maybe, uh, let's say organism one and two, right, had no interaction with each other that we could determine. But if we add organism six and it forms a, a relationship with organism one, all of a sudden that, that relationship creates a relationship with organism two directly as in a triangle or indirectly as in through one to the other. And so science starts to fall apart when we try to go that much of an isolationist, i.e. the classic scientific method, with something like just the soil life web. We haven't even talked about planting anything yet. Like, well, do these two plants go well together? Well, what else is there? What climate are they in? Maybe they go really well together in Jacksonville, Florida, but not so well in uh, Richmond, Virginia. There's all these variables. So permaculture uses a principle called interact, uh, uh, observe and interact, and accepting feedback to merit out this level of science within our error-detecting process. Meaning that any good permaculture practitioner, if they work with a piece of land long enough, will isolate the things that will work best on that piece of property to the strategies of the people that habitate the property and to their desires, wants, and goals within the ethical framework. Meaning that you and I could have the same exact property, same climate, same size, same solar intake. We could be neighbors, same soil, start out with exactly the same property. And we could employ entirely different applications of technique and tactic because we have a different strategy. Maybe I want a system that is primarily animal-based. Most of the trees are massed yields for the animals. I want it to be as low maintenance as possible. I only want to feed the people that live on the property. Uh, I want a little garden. I want a pond. I want some fish. And basically, I want to just have my little oasis. You have another property. Again, everything else is the same. It even has the same structure on it, the same landform. It's identical. But your strategy is you want to actually have a small farm uh, and you want to focus mainly on vegetation and you want to like sell through restaurants and farmers markets and you are okay with working every day as a farmer on your property, right? So that error detecting process works for both of us because we're not looking for one answer. We're looking for our answer under our circumstances. And so that's how we define science here. So how do we define design? How do we define design? And this is where it gets really interesting to me. I define design as laying out and implementing techniques and tactics to the goal of my strategy. You are actually free to completely define your design differently. You could say design is when I sit down with a piece of paper and I draw out where everything is. I design more in the real world. Like, I think that would work there. If it's not something that's a big, high-energy, hard-to-remove thing, i.e. something that can create a type 1 error, a type one error is when you do a thing and you regret doing the thing. As soon as you figure out it was wrong, you regret it forever and it's too expensive to change. That's a type one error in permaculture anyway. So as long as it's not going to be a type one error, I just do it and go observe and interact. Yeah, I did. So I'm using the science as a design implementation. And so when I pick a thing and I think my birds will eat it because a book said they'll eat it and my birds are like, yeah. We'll eat it if we're starving, but we don't really want it. I stop growing it for them. That's that's an active design component of using that feedback, that error detection process.
And we all get to define design for ourselves. Define natural systems. This is, and people say all the time, natural. It's natural. Well, it's all natural. What the hell is all natural? If you ask the government, you get a totally different answer than if you ask a permaculturist, I'll tell you that. If, for instance, there are products that include honey that are not considered all natural because if the extraction process wasn't done a specific way with the honey, it's not considered natural. It's considered a manufactured product. But if they include sugar, they can say it's all natural because sugar is natural, even though it does not exist in the form that it was used to be put in the food. That's just an example, right? There's people who say a natural ecosystem is devoid of human life. I would say, well, first of all, we have the ethics and the whole care of people thing. It's kind of inconvenient, but I'm glad it's there if you're the one in charge. But are we not natural? Are we not here as a native species to planet Earth, as native as any other species that exists or ever has existed? We're certainly as native as the dinosaurs were. We somehow got here. You know, whether you have a religious explanation, whether you have a scientific explanation, or you have something that blends the two worlds, I don't care. We don't have to agree about how, but we got here. We're here. We didn't come here in spacecraft from some other planet. That would make us non-native species. We're here. We're here the same way through some similar process to every other life form. Now, unlike a lot of other life forms, we can think at a level that allows us through our adaptive nature to be extremely beneficial or harmful to the planet. All other species are regulated by the environment over time itself. A species that overeats in a given situation will either end up attracting enough predators to bring its population in a check, or it will disperse its own population by eating too much food and not being able to adapt. We can travel at speeds that are ridiculous compared to other species. We have so many things that we can do. But that doesn't make us not natural. There are a lot of things that animals or insects can do that we can't. I would say today we probably could make a scale model of, you know, a one-for-one scale model without pouring metal down and killing all the poor insects of, like, the way ants build a nest. We have the computer technology, 3D printing, we could do it. Go back a hundred years, and I don't think mankind could have could have built a scale model, let alone a functional ant mount. And if I don't know that today, without the leafcutter ants, we could build what leafcutter ants built. Here's the cool thing about leafcutter ants. They take the leaves down in the hole, and everybody thinks, what does that mean? Well, they eat the leaves. They don't eat the leaves. Leafcutter ants don't eat leaves. They're cool critters, too, man. They're not a very aggressive ant. When I was in Panama, they were everywhere. And right through the middle of, like, fields, like for the, where they had, like, the parade fields and exercise fields and all on the base, you would see this little path about two inches wide where there's, like, no grass. It looked like somebody went through there with, like, a, a roller wheel and just matted it all flat down. That's kind of what happened. And what it was, they loved the mangrove leaves. But they might be living over here in the jungle. There's one mangrove tree that has a sprinkler sitting out here at the edge of the field because it looks cool. And so they would go all the way to the mangrove, and they would take the leaves, and they would go all the way back. And you'd see them. No leaf going one way, leaf going the other way. That's how you knew where their house was. And you could stick your hand right in that line of ants, and they would just crawl right over your fingers. They wouldn't sting you. They wouldn't bite you. I'm sure if you went and messed with their hole, they would bite you. But what they're doing with those leaves 
They take those leaves down in a hole. They chew them up. They have all these little caverns and spaces. And they build up and acquire this, this organic material. And they infuse it with a fungus. And they cultivate the fungus and they eat the fungus. They're farming essentially mushrooms. I don't think we can do that. So there's an incredibly advanced engineering species by a, a critter that nobody would say is not native to Panama, Costa Rica, etc. That doesn't, you know, would say it doesn't belong there. You get rid of them, you actually have a horrible incidence of ecological consequences because they create so much infiltration and so much interaction. They're basically pruning trees in a very regenerative way, by the way. So we're not going to say they're, they don't belong here because they can do this incredible engineering. That doesn't mean we don't belong here. So when it comes to natural systems, we have to accept that humans are native and therefore natural, but that we can be damaging to the ecosystem. And then we have a choice. We can either recognize that we're doing this damage and do it long enough that nature's like, okay, I see what you did there. Now you're going to starve. Oh, I see what you did there. Now you're not getting enough nutrient. And because you're not getting enough nutrient, there's going to be a virus or a bacterium or some other thing, and a bunch of you are going to die. And when enough of you die, the remnant will be left, will realize the mistakes that it made, and it will evolve to the next level, or you'll go extinct. That That's really how nature works. Every organism runs up against this. There's catastrophic events like comets or something like that. But in the end, most species either find a system of self-regulation or they perish from the earth forever. As far as we know, we are the only species, certainly on this planet, with the capacity to think that way, comprehend that, and decide on our actions and what we do based on that foreknowledge. And to think about our children when we make that decision, which means multi-generational thinking. If you're not thinking about at least seven generations in the future, you are not into this as an ethical design science yet. You haven't gotten there yet. It's okay. We're all on a journey somewhere, but that's that's the mindset. That's where you will plant a tree a week before you expect to die and hope that somebody cares for it, but you still did the work to get that one more tree in the ground before you went because it matters. So that's natural systems. So we are part of that. So natural systems are self-regulatory systems, self-propagating systems. Who waters the forest? Most of you probably live somewhere near a forest. You plant a tree in your yard, it dies if you don't water it until you get it established. But a tree grows in the forest all on its own, somehow lives. There's a lot to that. One is... Nature is beautiful because anything that isn't beautiful and prime dies. It's a hard thing to accept. And again, it can get very Machiavellian if we don't ground this with ethics. That's why I can't leave the word ethical out of this discussion. I can't. Because you can use that as an excuse. Well, this person is disfigured. This person is incapable. Let's just wipe them out. I care of people. Well, Little problem there, a little inconvenient design restriction. We're going to have to not take that approach. We are one of the few species, we're not the only species, that actually cares for weak and sick. That actually takes an elderly member of our species and says, you know, let's value this experience. In a lion pride, 
when the old man gets too old, his sons or his, his, his nephews or whatever either kill him or they run him out of the pride and he dies and the hyenas eat him. And you'll never see a mangy old lion in the wild for very long. If you see an old, tired, worn out, incapable of defending itself lion for more than a day or three, it's in a zoo or something like that. If you see a weak, crippled gazelle for very long, it's in a zoo. It's under human care. Most animals don't have any consideration once uh, a member of their species gets really sick, ill, wounded, or old. About the only ones that do, to some degree, are some of the oceanic mammals and other primates. And none to our level. So within our natural systems, outside of ourselves, even though we're part of it, those systems need to be self-propagating and self-regulating, but yet they need to allow for death. You need to accept not everything's going to live, and that's okay. And when we plant a bunch of stuff, part of that feedback and that science stuff is this crop, every time I plant it, it dies or gets a disease. Maybe I shouldn't plant it for a while. Then maybe I could try it again. Maybe when the soil health improves. I don't know, but I'm going to stop trying that. I'm going to plant, instead of planting a hundred trees, I'm going to plant a thousand with the intent that 900 will die. If more live, great, but I'm going to go at it. I'm not a trophy hunter. I want one for one exchange. I want every dollar spent, every seed planted to, to, to grow maximum, uh, germination and survival rate. No, I want optimum survival rate and optimum means the strong survive and the weak fail. And we plant things that are able to reproduce themselves. Once you have a well-established permaculture system, most of your work should be maintaining edge, saying this is as far as I want this forest portion to advance. That I need to control, and I can do that mechanically, or I can do that with animals, or I can do that with harvest, or I can do that by planting something that guilds against further expansion. Pretty cool for one definition so far, isn't it? Right? But that's not, so natural systems are self-regulatory and self-replicating, and they're able to handle loss without collapsing. So that if we go away and a, a, a hundred years later in a good system that was right for the climate, if somebody found that, like there was a remnant left, a wipeout of our population, and as humanity regained its time and it came back, it wouldn't be the same, but there should be something there. There should be something there that's different than the ecosystem completely left to itself if we did our job right. There should be something that that generation, a thousand years later, would see if they understood what they were looking at and say, somebody did this, and there's now a thing here. And there's literally like 2,000-year-old food forests. Jeff Lawton has videos on them in Morocco. 2,000 years humanity has maintained and worked with these ecosystems with very little planting and new cultivation. Just control and letting things self and repropagate and creating microclimates. Now, provide. Back to our definition, permaculture is an ethical design science that uses natural systems to provide. Well, just provide me. Well, to me it means, when I say it, that if you are an active participant in this system, that you are able to gain what you need through that interaction. And that might be direct or indirect. So I might need vegetables this week and my garden produces them. That's pretty 
pretty obvious. I did the work, the vegetable came out. But I may be able to produce a surplus that I can exchange with somebody that has a different thing that I need. Or an overriding, let's say, village or tribe-level system may provide water to us in a way that's not damaging to the environment. There is a place for collective work, collectivism, as long as it's voluntary. And tribal systems typically relied a lot on each other. So to provide here doesn't mean that that you're under some obligation to go give somebody else everything. Like there is a level of input required if you expect an output. This is an active system. Now, there might be enough abundance that there will be people outside of it that can benefit from it. That's okay. But it doesn't mean that we're under some obligation. Like if you can say, but Jack, what you're doing isn't feeding one person. There's a one hungry person over here, and you don't care, so what you're doing is not permaculture. I'm back to that sphere of influence and impact and and control. I'm doing what I can over here. If you're really worried about that person, you go over there. So it's not... It's not an obligation to provide everything to everyone. It's an obligation to attempt to derive what we need from this system. So how can we stack the deck so that the things that we're using are provided by an ethical system of design and and, and wilderness and forest and farm management, including housing? Everybody, when we say permaculture, they think it means permanent agriculture. It actually means permanent culture. Permanent culture. Not permanent agriculture. In fact, I don't even like the term agriculture. Agriculture is the culture of fields. When it comes to growing food, we need to be looking at, when it comes to the vegetative start, horticulture, the culture of plants. Doesn't that make a lot more sense than the culture of fields? I don't like culture of field. Well, what a culture of plant. And then that interaction with animal husbandry and animal products and how that role is played. And I would say that a lot of people would say that if you grow a bunch of timber and cut it down and build houses, you've lost the trees. I, I find that very disingenuous. The person that for every tree they cut down plants 10. Over the right Time preference is a net positive to trees. And I would much rather a person go onto a property and thinking about that next generation say, I'm going to use some of the timber here, selectively harvest the best timber. I'm going to build housing for my family. I'm going to more than replace that. And a hundred years from that point, if that, that, that dwelling needs repair, there's more than enough surplus timber to do the repair, or you need to expand or build on the next property over. This is, this is how we provide. We think ahead and do today so that it's there for tomorrow. That's what provision means here. Then we have human needs. There's a lot of people that are really confused about what a need is. Versus a want, right? I, I, I would tell you that if you are alive and not dead up till now in a purist definition, you have always had 100% of your needs met. Oxygen is a need. 
If I take oxygen from you for a very brief period of time, you will cease to exist, i.e. you need it. Water is a need. It is a longer time that I can deprive you of water, but in a relatively short time versus human life expectancies, if I take the water from you and you get no water, you will die. Food is a need. Food is a need. Again, you can live a lot longer without food than water, but if I deprive you of nutrient for long enough, you give you water and air, no nutrient, pure plain tap water, eventually you will die. You'll get sick and die. So those are like on a strict standpoint. But if humanity is to thrive, we also like need other humans to be able to exist together in a way that doesn't involve us all stabbing each other with knives all the time. If humanity is to fulfill all of the promises of permaculture, we kind of need some recreation in our lives. We don't have to be fully purist with this. But when we say needs, we do have to be clear that we're not saying everything that anybody can come up with, that anybody wants at any moment has to be met or it's not permaculture. And I know that sounds crazy to most of you guys listening to me today, but there are people that, that are part of this whole culture, this whole community we call permaculture, that do think that way. Well, anything I want, I should have. And that's a, that's a generational problem to a large degree. The most recent three generations are the most predisposed to this idea that whatever I want, I should have. And if, if I don't have, somebody should give it to me. Well, the promise of permaculture is all the things that you need, that you actually need to both stay alive and be a happy, productive human can be acquired through a design science using natural self-regenerative and regulating systems. We don't have to do all this harm to meet those baseline requirements. And most of the damage that we do to the planet comes from meeting those baseline requirements. There's a lot of stuff when I say you don't need everything you say you want. You can think of things that people have that, that opinion of. The amount of environmental degradation being done so that they can have those things pales in comparison to the amount of environmental degradation being done by by farming corn, soy, wheat, potatoes, and rice. More environmental damage is done farming that big five list of crops than just about anything else that humans do outside of mining operations and some of the things we do with fossil fuels. And a lot of what we do with fossil fuels and mining is so we can farm those big five products. And so if we can meet the caloric needs of healthy food for humans, we get rid of the, without doing damage to the environment, without harming the earth, we, right there, we get rid of the single biggest piece of harm humans are doing. And the reason it's the biggest one is because it's very comfortable, comfortable for people. It's very comfortable to harm the earth through agriculture because most of you aren't farmers. And if you are a farmer, you're just trying to stay alive and keep your farm. So you don't really notice what you're doing. You're just worried about, I got this square. Combine's got to be on the property by this time to get the wheat in before it's out there too long. And it can't get here too early. Like, And if I don't do this, I'm going to lose everything that's been in my family for 50 years or more. I understand why the average farmer is 66 or 67 years old. 
But that, that all that damage is occurring and it's becoming more and more commercialized. And that guy that we're even worried about is going to be existing less and less. It's more and more done by machines and automation. It's a business program run by corporations. And I don't hate corporations, but that's what this is here. And we say, well, we need it. So then we take a bag of, of chips made from corn and soy and wheat. We call it whole grain. We put a picture of a big, beautiful field on, on the bag, and we say it's so-and-so farms product. And everybody feels good about it and doesn't think for one minute about the environmental damage of plowing that field every year and killing every single bit of life in that soil every time you do it and exporting massive amounts of topsoil to our oceans and rivers and streams. The number one thing that this country exports, the United States of America, the breadbasket of the world, the number one export we have by tonnage, we get no money for, and it's one of the most valuable things we own. Get no money for it, and it's lost and it's gone forever, and it's topsoil. By ton, the United States puts more topsoil into the ocean than it exports any product that we exchange for, for value with other nations, period. It's not even close. So we not how have to move on from human needs and how we can like meet that baseline need to the the needs of the ecological systems that we live in so that we're not harming the earth. So what is an ecological system? This is a hard thing for people to understand. Everything that you ever look at anywhere is an ecological system of some sort, if there are, if anything is living there. A subdivision is an ecological system. It was designed and built and constructed, usually poorly, by human beings, but it is an ecological system. It may not be a sustainable one. It's almost inevitable that it's not a regenerative one, but it's an ecological system. So when we say ecological system, we have to do a little bit better than that. Excuse me. <laughs> we have to do a little bit better than that. We have to say a healthy ecological system. But we actually don't. Because we're going to get there. As we pick this apart, we're almost done. So ecological needs means that we need to cease damage to the ecology that we depend on for our very existence. So since we have to take responsibility for our own existence, and we have to not harm the earth, we need to look at every ecological impact we have and say, am I actually jeopardizing my own future by jeopardizing this ecological system? And even if I'm going to be fine, and my, my son will be fine, and my grandson will be fine? Am I jeopardizing my great-grandchild or great-great-grandchild's existence by damaging this ecological system? We also have to look at this ecological system and say, wait a minute, this is, this is an amazing thing. When you look at a forest or a garden or anything in between, you're looking at something that is innately complex. And if you say, If I really honor this thing, there's a few things I'll do. One, I'll take the time to observe and interact and accept feedback. I'll learn from it. I'll take that learning and I'll apply it to my design, since this is a design science, 
and I will hand that knowledge off to others and down to my prodigy. The other thing, though, is I'll say, is there something I can gain from this system directly? Is there something I can take from this system without harming it to feed myself or to build a house with? And that is how we honor that system. The same way that we honor a pig, when we take the life of a pig, by using everything from from snout to tip of tail that's usable on that pig. If it's not usable for us, it can go to the dog. If it's not good for the dog, whatever's left can go to the black soldier flies that make compost to grow more food to grow another pig. In the same way that we do that, that's how we need to look at ecological systems. That what we, when we take something from an ecological system, it should be done in such a way that at minimum does no harm, but in an optimum system actually returns surplus to that system to make it stronger and more regenerative. Or another way to understand this is people protect what they value. There were certain countries in Africa, for instance, where animals had been hunted near to extinction, and the solution was let's ban all hunting. Well, local people that knew that they could get money for a rhinoceros horn, or frankly, if I kill this thing, my kids will eat tonight, didn't really care that it was banned. So they would risk being killed because they shoot poachers in some of these. Literally, on-site, you're a poacher, bang, you're dead. They throw you in a hole in the ground, and everybody's okay with it, except your, your family and your friends. So that was the initial plan. And then they figured out, if we actually allow hunting, and we charge people that we would think of as wealthy a certain rate and cost to hunt, and this brings economic activity into the nation, And we then use that to improve life in the nation. With a voluntary process, we've now made these animals innately more valuable to the local person than they would be as a quick hit on either feeding my family or selling a rhinoceros horn to China because of some superstition that the guy killing the rhinoceros doesn't even believe. And it took time, but over time, it's actually worked a lot better because all of the sudden more people have a value of the resource. There's more of the resource. And now we have the ability to selectively harvest to feed those people who originally were just trying to stay alive. They now have a surplus and there's more, not less planes game and predators in these situations. Now didn't work perfectly everywhere, but it is an example of how we can create things by observing and respecting the ecology of a system and understanding if we make the ecology more valuable, people will be more likely to defend it because they end up with a sense of ownership when they benefit from interaction with it. And we can do that with teaching our child to value the garden that they bitch about having to pull the weeds out of, but they, they realize that it's feeding them. And we can do that with grand ecosystems like the Serengeti. And anything in between. Last, regenerative. There are a lot of people in permaculture that despise the word sustainable. I do not. I just differentiate. Paul Wheaton says sustainable means barely surviving. I disagree. Something can be sustainable for 10,000 years. And in year one, it is hardly barely surviving. And maybe sustainable is all that it can be with the technology and within the design restrictions called like, oh, I don't know, the state, its apparatuses, the industrial complex. Around. Maybe that's as good as we can do for now. 
but that will lead us to the path that becomes regenerative. So I don't hate sustainable. I just don't use it. I don't use it like, in, you know, in, 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 uh, as a substitute for regenerative. Regenerative literally means that every year that I'm here, there's more, not less. It is the opposite of mining. If I am managing soil properly in year one, if my soil on a scale of one to ten is a seven and a half, which is better than most, in ten years, it needs to be better than a seven and a half on a grade that we would make on its organic matter, its fertility, its resilience, its tilth, etc. Well, in all of these systems, that's what happens. The gardens that I, I do most of my growing in right now have been in place for about five years. And the soil that is in those gardens is infinitely better today than it was the day that I first put the soil into the raised beds. And at my workshop, I'm going to show my, my students, I'm going to show my students how, one way how, that you make that happen through the winter when I'm not growing anything at all. I'm not even going to do a cover crop this year. There's ways to do that. Will it be perfect? No. But it will it work? Will it make the system more regenerative? So now, with that done, let me read the definition to you again. And let's see if it means a lot more than the first time you had it, heard it in this episode. Define ethic. I'm sorry. Permaculture is an ethical design science that uses natural systems to provide all human and ecological needs in a regenerative way. Is it not all of the sudden a sentence that reads like a page, if not a chapter? Maybe a, I would say a chapter. That's how much I get from that definition. And when we start thinking about permaculture this way, everything changes. Because we have this one sentence, and you can take all the PDCs you want, You can learn all the techniques you want. You can watch all the YouTube videos you want. Please keep watching them. I'm not saying anything negative. But you'll be able to look at that and go, not for me. You might even look at something and think, I don't think that's an ethical way to do that thing. And you don't know that person's entire circumstance. And that might be the most ethical thing they can do in the circumstance that they're in. And you might have another way. So instead of worrying about that Bill did it wrong, or Tom did it wrong, or Hunter did it wrong, or Mark did it wrong, you worry about how you can do it right. And this is why, when, and it's partly why I say a PDC is not for everybody. A permaculture design course is not for everyone. I think everyone can benefit, but not everybody will. Let me explain it this way. You want your own little homestead. You want some chickens and some sheep. They make lambs every year. You want a garden, and you want to know how to maintain that, and you want to have some forage on your property as well for yourself, like herbage and, and medicinals and things like that. You don't need a PDC. You need to learn how to do those things, and you would benefit from having a permaculture designer help you design what you want, but you don't need a PDC for that. You know exactly what you want. You have a clear strategy and overall goal in mind, And you'll figure it out, and our forefathers did that over and over and over again with homesteading in America. A PDC is the higher level of how all those techniques get implemented. Again, it's like you have a, 
a quiver, and you're like that. I can't remember his name. The superhero that's the archer, right? I guess there's a couple of them, right? There's Green Arrow, but I'm thinking of the other guy, whatever. And he has like a dynamite one and a, you know a, a drill one or whatever. And so whatever you need to do. In whatever situation you're in, you pull that arrow out for that objective, and you fire that arrow into that situation, right? That's that's permaculture to a degree. But then it's understanding, do I even need an arrow? Or do I need to go over here and pull clothing out of a wardrobe? Or do I need something totally different? How do I develop that strategy? How do I figure that out? And when you're well-disciplined, you go to any climate type and look at the hills And no, this is the drylands, even if it's in the rainy season and everything looks wet. And you're able to then use it's, it's, it's a good permaculturist is kind of like a special forces operative, except instead of killing people, they're feeding people. One of the things that special forces does is when you go into a region, you use local people to accomplish the mission. You get local intelligence. You trust local leadership to a degree. A permaculturist will go in and, well, what did, what was traditionally grown here and why, why did it stop getting grown? What went wrong? Maybe it was the wrong crop or maybe it was the wrong technique or maybe it was the wrong application of the crop and the technique. I don't know. I need to figure that out. What's available? Who's the oldest, who's the oldest person around us that ever, uh, grew food here? Who's the oldest person around here that ever managed goats? I want to go talk to him. Bring that person to me or bring me to that person if they'll see me. And you collect that information. I think Hawkeye is the archer guy that I was thinking about. I don't really do superheroes much, but I think that's the guy. My, my nephew, my, my grandson likes him. Um, and then you take that collective intelligence and you use local talent to start implementing these solutions. And then you turn over the operation to the locals and you go away. Whether that local is a well-to-do person that just bought 70 acres or you're doing relief work in the middle of Africa, it doesn't matter. It's the same approach. And that's why permaculture is for everyone, but a permaculture design course may not be. If you like what you heard today, I think you'd gain a ton from a PDC, but you don't need it to have a good homestead. So what I want to finish up with is what you're not going to learn in a PDC. You're not going to learn the 10 vegetables that grow best in a garden in your backyard unless it's actually a local PDC by a local permaculturist that's calling it a PDC, but they're actually teaching you how to do permaculture locally in your area, which I think they would be better off just telling you that's what they're doing. A PDC follows the 14 chapters of the Permaculture Designer's Manual. You take that book and you look through it. If it's not in that book, it's probably not part of a design course. You're learning to be an architect, not learning how to build a specific building. So an architect can't necessarily start laying bricks but they know which bricks to lay in which situation with what type of mortar and what wall really shouldn't be a brick wall. That's, that's the design science that is permaculture, that ability to look and, and, and figure out within this situation, within the needs of my client, because there's always a client. You can be your own client. You can be hired and you have a client that's an individual or a family Or your client could be an entire country who is saying, help us figure out our ecological needs and how we can take care of ourselves. And there's projects that have been that big. Some of the stuff Neil Spackman's done, some of the stuff Jeff Lawton's done have been that big. But is it, is it this a little bit different? 
than maybe any way you've heard this explained before. I hope so. Uh, that's all I really have today, and I want to thank you guys for being with me. I want to remind you guys that you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is not permaculture related, but it may bail you out in a situation that sucks. It is the DeWalt Portable Power Station and Jump Starter, and it is on sale today for 40 bucks off. It's normally 140 bucks. It's on sale, or 180 bucks. It's on sale for 140. What this is is a device that if your battery is dead, uh, as long as your car could start, it will start. As long as it's fully charged, it will also do things like charge USB devices and things like that. It has an alternator tester in it. It has a little bitty air compressor in it that will help put air back in your tire if you need it. Uh, and as long as you know how to use all that stuff, it will probably get you out of most of the reasons you'd be stuck most of the time. And that's about as good as you can hope to do. What doesn't this thing do? It does not have like an inverter in it where you can plug an AC device into it, which is fine because a device this size with a battery with this much storage, that's kind of a gimmick that won't really do much for you anyway. It will. I, this is the thing I love the most about it, though. It does come with a little 12-volt charger, so you can plug it in your car wherever you have a 12-volt plug or whatever. And, of course, that's a relatively slower way to charge it. But it basically has, they call it a power cube on the backside of it that's three prongs. You take the female end of an extension cord and you plug it into it. And you take any standard extension cord, plug it into the wall, and it'll charge. No proprietary BS type thing. You just uh, go ahead and uh, hook it up and charge it. And I would say that it makes a lot of sense to have something like this, whether you like the DeWalt brand or not, something like this in every vehicle you own, because then you would be taking responsibility for yourself. And you would also be taking responsibility for others. I have used jump starting packs and jumper cables far more in my life to help somebody stuck somewhere than I have for myself. I'm the guy, if I see somebody with their hood up and I'll, I'll pull up and assess the, is there any, cause you, you gotta be careful helping. You can get, you know, scammed and you can get shot or robbed trying to help. But if it looks legit and there's like a person, I can't get the car to start. Well, you think the battery's dead? Yeah, I got cables. Let's go. I think that we all need to be helping each other when we can. So I like having things like this, not just for myself. Uh, but for others as well. I also have something to announce today, and I'll be talking about this more this week. But just real quick, I have come up with a program that people using the Fountain app, I think, will really like. And it's called Fan Picks and Clips for the Week. And it's for the pro- – I will release this every Sunday or Monday, and it's for the prior week. And if you don't know, using the Fountain app, you can make clips of episodes. And every week, you guys – in addition to supporting me on Fountain or other podcasting 2.0 apps, make clips. Well, what I did this week is I went through the clips and I picked like 16 or 17 of them. And I made, and they, Fountain has a really cool feature. You can export them as a video. Unfortunately, sometimes a clip that you guys make that I really like, it won't work. But I took all my clips I made, clips you guys made, and I exported them as videos. I uploaded them to a single YouTube playlist for last week. And I put them in that playlist so you can listen to them all the way through. Or you can pick and choose which ones you want to list. And then every week I'll put on the blog a post like the one you're seeing now, Fan Picks and Clips for Week Ending 10, 23, 20. It says 23. I got to change that. It's not, it's not 2023 yet, right? Uh, typo there. Uh, but yeah, so now you can, you can find out every week 
the stuff that everybody liked last week, and you can listen to little shorts. Some of them are like seven minutes long. Some of them are like 50 seconds long. I also did a post that tells you uh, what I think the, uh, the, the, the best practices are to get included in this, and it's things like I think your, your clips generally will do better when they're like two to four minutes long rather than like 35 seconds long or like 10 minutes long. And I'm not going to use all of them every week because a lot of them are made. Sometimes there's overlap. So somebody makes a clip and this clip's a little bit different, but the best part of it was in one or I'll pick one here and there. The other thing I look at is, and this is why it's cool that you might want to do clips, guys. What tip got the most tips? What clip got the most tips? See, when you make a clip in Fountain, other people see it, especially if you have a lot of followers. And they hit like. And if they hit like, you get 10 sats. That's Satoshi, smallest unit of a Bitcoin. I have mine set to 25. If I hit like, you get 25 from me. Every time I pick one of these to include in that week, I'm going tap, tap, tap. I'm giving 75 sats every time I pick one for that week's inclusion. Here's another cool thing. It doesn't have to be from this week's shows. Last week, I had two really great clips that people made. One was from a few weeks ago. One was from a year ago. It's just in this week, from the totality of the show, the clips that people chose. And it's really, really cool, and you really should check it out. There will be a link in the show notes today, a link in the video notes below. We'll go over there about an hour after this is done, if you're watching it live like always. I think this is going to be really cool, and this is what I love the most about it. It puts you guys in charge of this. I have found my most successful initiatives to have been things that I get off the ground, I promote it, and I let you do what you think is right with it. And sometimes it explodes, and sometimes it's really great for a time, and it kind of does its thing, and it's finished, and it sunsets. Either way, I'm okay with That's like, oh, I don't know, planting a tree and letting the tree decide how it wants to look as it grows. So if you want to be part of this, man, you guys really should get involved. This is more impetus to get the Fountain app. Somebody today was saying it's buggy on the Telegram group. Yes, it can be. I'm in their beta group. Let me tell you something. These guys are every day making that app better. And when you make something better, sometimes the new code affects the old code and there's some little hangups and stuff. Uh, I bitched about something like, we will make this a priority for you, Jack. They're good dudes and they're doing all they can and, and definitely check it out. You can find it at fountain.fm, but there's an affiliate code in the link down there in the video notes or in the episode notes today. Uh, if you want to sign up for Fountain, if you haven't already done so. With that, I also want to say last week I was the number one supported podcast on Fountain. Uh, I thought that was awesome. We hit the top of the charts. Uh, thanks to all of you who have helped support me and make that happen. And uh, I will continue to try to do a great job for you. Uh, tomorrow I'll be back. Tomorrow we have an episode on Bitcoin. I know not everybody loves that, but we have an episode on Bitcoin. And how, for those of you like, oh, I need to use privacy coins. We're going to tell you how to use Bitcoin privately. We're going to tell you how to do that tomorrow. I have an expert on that tomorrow. Uh, then I have Paul Wheaton himself, who's right in the middle of his Garden Master course, will be on Wednesday. Thursday, I don't know exactly what we're going to do yet. I think I might give in to you guys that want your uh, topical uh, state-of-the-world stuff going, because there is a lot of crazy crap going on. And Friday is always expert counsel. Happy that I got to be with you guys leading the week off. I thought this was a great show. I hope you did too. I will catch you tomorrow with that episode on using Bitcoin private. They pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out for just 
run you round. They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. 